And we have Father Lampy coming up next. And he's going to be talking about Eucharistic miracles. Now, I've often told people that when doubt starts to creep in, when that darkness wants to say, this is not true, you know, and wants to corrode the faith, I always fall back on the two miracles of our mother, Fatima and Guadalupe, where science cannot disprove it. They've had their chances. So basically the supernatural exists. And therefore, if that exists, so does the love of our Christ and the risen Savior. Just makes sense that way. Because a mother, what's her job? But to lead us to her son, Jesus Christ. And Father Lampy's going to be talking about those miracles. So that's going to give me a few more things to rely on. Because, you know, the enemy doesn't like us to be happy. There's not too much to say about Father Lampy that we all do not know. A wonderful associate pastor who has wonderful homilies. And if you ever wanted to hear those again, he has a, I guess, a podcast link. Yes, he does. Uh, on the uh, website of our parish to hear those. So if you hear something, a message that comes out and you I need to share that, that's how you do it. Just like if you hear a good message today, we are recording this and you can go back and request a copy of this to give to a loved one, a family member who maybe has fallen away from the church. So without further ado, please welcome Father Lampy. So it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I love uh, helping others in the faith and I love um, I love the Eucharist because it really is our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who, as we heard in our first presentation, um, loves us so much that he would come in person to be with us. And uh, I also love science. Um, many of you probably already know this, but I used to be a nuclear engineer before I became a priest. So um, when the two come together, it's just uh, really great for me. And so I love talking about the Eucharist. I love talking about um, science associated with the Eucharist, such as Eucharistic miracles. And so it's a joy to be here with you today. Um, so when we talk about Eucharistic miracles, there's an important thing that we need to know. There's lots of important things um, about Eucharistic miracles we need to be aware of. And one is that um, these are, I mean, well, what are Eucharistic miracles? They are miracles associated with the Eucharist, as the name implies. Um, and they can't be explained by natural means. Um, science can investigate it, but can't explain how or why this happened. Uh, and reason alone can't explain how or why this happened either. It's really um, just a miracle something that only God can do. Um, it's a gift from God. It's, it's a way to witness to the truth, to testify to a certain sanctity or dignity. Um, and in this case, these Eucharistic miracles are pointing to the truth of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist. Um, so it's a real joy to talk about this. Um, they testify to uh, the fact that Jesus really is there and they inspire us to a deeper awareness of his presence in the eucharist 
Um, they help us to love our Lord in return, who loves us so much that he would come to us in the Eucharist. Um, so Eucharistic miracles are a gift from God to help us to believe what he has already shared with us. And how is it that we know with confidence that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist? Well, we have credible witnesses. We have uh, good reason to believe that Jesus is there. For example, we have sacred scripture. If we believe what sacred scripture is telling us about Jesus, then when sacred scripture tells us that it really is him in different passages, such as the Last Supper, this is my body, this is my blood, uh, we know that Jesus is the God of the universe. When he says these things, he means it, um, and it happens, because it's the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Uh, we also know from the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, or there is no life within you. John chapter 6, verse 53. And so sacred scripture points us to the reality of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. But we also have sacred tradition. We have those who are the followers of Jesus Christ. They shared what they learned from Jesus, the apostles. They shared it with their disciples, and their disciples shared it with theirs. Um, and so we have the witnesses of the early church fathers uh, telling us how to understand sacred scripture, telling us what has been handed on to them. So, for example, St. Ignatius of Antioch, who was a disciple of St. John the Apostle, in his writings, he testifies that Jesus is really present in the Eucharist. Likewise, St. Irenaeus, who was a disciple of St. Polycarp, a disciple of St. John the Apostle, tells us that it really is Jesus. Um, and so there are many others as well, but this gives you a sense, an idea that if we want to know what the early church believed, if we want to know how we are to interpret sacred scripture, we look to the early church fathers, and they are the ones who tell us, along with scripture, that Jesus really is present. Then also we have the official teaching of the church. If we turn to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it tells us that he is truly present. And if we look at the history of the church, the church has always said this, not only with the church fathers, but throughout the centuries. In fact, it wasn't until the 11th century that someone even suggested that the Eucharist wasn't actually Jesus. And when that happened, they had a meeting, um, and that was condemned as heresy. Um, then when it was challenged again, um, it was infallibly taught in the 16th century at the Council of Trent that Jesus Christ is substantially present in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity, fully and truly our Lord. So for these three reasons, we believe in the reality of Christ's presence in the Eucharist. But it can still be challenging. It can still be challenging for us to believe this because when we look at these things ourselves, when we look at the Eucharist ourselves, it still looks like bread. It still looks like wine how can we say that this actually is jesus okay yeah scripture tradition early church fathers but jesus knows that we're weak and despite all of these credible witnesses we might still struggle to believe and so he gives us eucharistic miracles so eucharistic miracles are not the reason why we should believe in the first place but they help us to believe they help us to say yes to all those good reasons why we believe um, we hear from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, faith depends on hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ, and in turn, preaching depends upon the word of Christ. Believing is an act of the intellect, which under the influence of the will, moved by God through grace, gives its consent to divine truth. 
And so Eucharistic miracles help us to believe. They help us to have faith in what the church has taught us and what we should believe because of all those other reasons. That being said, Eucharistic miracles are not something that are required for us to believe in. We don't have to believe that these things actually happen. We can still be good, faithful Christians, good, faithful Catholics, and not believe any of the miracles that I'm going to tell you about. But what we do have to believe is that God, if he wanted to, could do these things. Um, But we also have good reasons to believe that he did do these things. And so uh, we cannot exclude the possibility of Eucharistic miracles as part of our faith. God can do it if he wants to, but we're not required to believe that he did these particular things. And when someone tries to claim that, oh, there's a Eucharistic miracle, the church is always very careful and prudent, doesn't immediately jump to the conclusion, oh yeah, it's true, it happened, just because someone said so. They have to do a thorough investigation. So there's a a caution, a prudence, before the church approves a Eucharistic miracle. So all of the miracles I'm going to talk about today have been investigated by the Vatican and have been approved by the church as credible to believe. So the church wants to prevent the perception that God forgot to reveal something when he instituted the Eucharist. It's one of the reasons why um, the church is cautious about the Eucharist. Uh, We want to reduce, we want to reduce the risk um, of something thinking, of people thinking that the mass is secondary. So like, okay, these miracles, lots of awesome things happen, but that doesn't make what happens at the altar any less awesome or any less important. And so it's important for us not to minimize the ordinary ways in which God works in our lives. So miracles are extraordinary ways that God is at work with us, extraordinary ways in which he reveals himself and interacts with us. But usually God is working through ordinary means to interact with us, ordinary ways in which he reveals us, reveals to us his his very self and his love to us. And so It's often the case that um, people miss the little signs, the hints of God in their lives because he reveals himself quietly, humbly, through the ordinary aspects of life. And we don't want to minimize that God works in that way just because there are some times when he does things in extraordinary ways. And we want to be careful not to um, make people become more gullible or easily accept illusions, and so the church always does these investigations first before declaring anything uh, as an approved Eucharistic miracle. So um, when there's an investigation, the church makes sure that this miracle and the things that surround it do not contradict what we already know by what God revealed to us, so that it can't be contradicting the teachings of the church or the morals of the church, Um, It has to be something that's lawful and able to be presented to uh, the people of God. And it has to be something that can be prudently assented to by the faithful, something that people can look at and be in awe of and accept that this is a way in which God is revealing himself to us. So to help us consider that which is beyond the visible, um, God sometimes gives us uh, these things, these Eucharistic miracles. Um, So like I said before, science and reason cannot explain these miracles in and of and by themselves. Um, But to those who believe, it makes a lot of sense that the Lord 
and sometimes on some occasions would want to help us in our belief by doing these things. So Eucharistic miracles point us to the supernatural and help us to strengthen our faith. It helps us to recognize that Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist and to accept that reality of his presence. But it's also important that we cannot forget that the Eucharist is a sacrament. Um, And a sacrament is uh, instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church. They are efficacious signs of grace perceptible to the senses, and through them the divine life of God is bestowed upon us. Now that's a very technical term. It comes from the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, But basically it's letting us know that the Eucharist is a gift to us by God, Jesus came up with it. He entrusted it to his church. He gave it to the church to continue on with these sacraments. Efficacious sign, it does what it signifies. So when we have the Eucharist, it signifies that we are all united, that we come together. It signifies his presence. And because it's efficacious, it actually brings about these things. He is truly present in the Eucharist. And through our reception, our worthy reception of Holy Communion, we do become more united. We do become a stronger community through Christ himself. Uh, The sacraments also are done Um, by the very fact of the action taking place. So just because I am a priest, and for no other reason than being a validly ordained priest, saying the words of Christ in the celebration of Mass, we know with certainty that Jesus Christ truly becomes present in the Eucharist. Um, So it doesn't matter how holy I am, and it doesn't matter how holy any other priest is. Uh, Jesus truly becomes present. We know that by faith. We know that because it's a guarantee from our Lord. And so this reality of Christ becoming present in the Eucharist is a miracle in itself that happens at every Mass. That what still looks like bread and still looks like wine is actually the God of the universe who loves you so much that he would humble himself in that way in order to be with you. And so we must not forget his true and real substantial presence, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist that he comes to us in this way to be united with us, to help us to grow in holiness. As was previously mentioned, the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. And it allows the sanctifying act of God to be made present to us through the worship of him. It contains the whole of our spiritual good and of the church, of Christ himself, Communion with the divine life and the unity of the people of God are both expressed and brought about in the Eucharist, as previously mentioned. Through the Eucharistic celebration, we are united already with the liturgy taking place in heaven, and we have a foretaste of eternal life. And so the Eucharist is this awesome gift of God. And even if Jesus never did any of these Eucharistic miracles, if he never revealed himself in this special way, it's still an awesome gift for him Uh, for us, for him to give himself to us in the Eucharist. But because he loves us so much, because he knows it's hard and it's difficult for us to believe for all of these other reasons, scripture, church fathers, official teaching, he does want to help us in our faith by revealing his true presence in Eucharistic miracles. And so the first one I'm going to talk about is Lanciano, Italy. And I apologize if I mispronounce any of these. Um, I don't speak Italian. Uh, But on your handout, you can see a number of pictures associated with it. 
This took place in 750 AD in the Church of St. Francis. There was a priest and he had some difficulty believing in the real presence. Um, this is actually a common theme in a number of Eucharistic miracles. And it's kind of sad that an ordained minister, someone who's well-educated in the faith would have these doubts, but that's also reality. And so even if you struggle in your belief in Jesus truly being present in the Eucharist, um, it's good to know that you're not the only one. So a priest in 750 AD doubted that Jesus truly becomes present in the Eucharist. And as he was saying, as he was celebrating mass, as he said the words of consecration, he saw the host turn into human flesh and the wine into human blood. Um, and so that was uh, a shocker to him. And he was amazed by that. And all the other people at mass got to see that too. Um, and what's also miraculous is that the flesh is still intact and that the blood is still intact. Um, and so we still have these things today, even though that was over 1,250 years ago. In fact, um, to kind of verify that this actually happened, in 1970, there was a detailed investigation of this Eucharistic miracle. Like, okay, so we say that this is human flesh and we say that this is human blood. And you can see pictures on the handout. Uh, the circular disc is the, uh, the flesh. And you can see on the right in the handout, um, just kind of this reliquary. And inside that jar is globulates of the human blood. And then the pictures in between are what they saw under a microscope, um, seeing the blood cells and the blood vessels. And so there was a detailed analysis by Dr. Edward Lanoli, who was the director of the hospital in Arezzo and who was a professor of anatomy, his, histology, chemistry, and clinical microscopy. Um, so he's very well educated, and he did this investigation on March 4th. In 1971, he examined the results of the miracle. Um, and they presented, actually, that was when they did the detailed report, was March 4th, 1971. And there were detailed results of this investigation. So using science to see, is this miracle reliable? Is this something we should believe, that Jesus actually did this? That he took bread and actually made it his own human flesh? That he took wine and actually made it into human blood? Um, and so in this detailed analysis from 1971, uh, they authenticated it really is human flesh, that it consists of muscular striated tissue of the mitochondrium, which is a medical term. It's, it's actually a heart muscle. Um, and so they can tell exactly not only that this is human flesh, but it, where in the human body it comes from. It comes from the heart. Um, in investigating the blood, it truly is blood. Uh, Cryomographic, I apologize, I'm also not a doctor, I was a nuclear engineer. Uh, cryomatographic analysis indicated that um, it actually is absolute and, and indisputably certain that it is human blood. Uh, one of the studies showed with certainty that the flesh and blood are human, that uh, there was a certain immuno hematological test that affirms with complete objectivity and certitude that they both belong to the same blood type, which is AB. Um, those of you who may be familiar with blood types, AB is the rarest type, 
and this is also the same type of blood found on the Shroud of Turin. So if you've heard of that artifact, it is believed by many to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. It has an image of a crucified man on it. And so we have the same blood type, this rare blood type, um, coming from what used to be uh, bread and wine and is now flesh and blood. Um, same blood type as that artifact believed to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Uh, but the most common people who have that kind of blood type is those who live in the Middle East. So Middle Eastern populations, such as Jewish people, uh, have that kind of blood type. And we know that Jesus Christ, historically speaking, in the human flesh, was of Jewish descent. So uh, also in this analysis, the proteins contained in the blood have a normal distribution, um, but the identical percentage of that of uh, normal human blood. Um, the dissection revealed that there aren't any traces of any preservatives. Uh, there isn't anything that was used in order, such as like embalming fluid, in order to make this still be human blood and flesh. So um, maybe you already figured this out. That's not normal uh, that bread and wine does this. And it's also not normal that it lasts 1,250 years plus and still maintains its integrity as fresh blood, as if it was just drawn from the person. Um, and so some people said, well, maybe this is a hoax, but that has been discredited um, by this analysis, uh, which was published in, um, in the Seclavo Notebooks in Diagnostics, collection number three, 1971. So if you wanted to see it in a scientifically reviewed journal, that's where you can find this information about Lanciano, Italy. Um, and so that's really awesome. Um, and like I said, you can look at the handout and take a look at those pictures, um, especially the, the middle where they have the um, look through the microscope and you could see um, nerves and tissue and flesh like, uh, fiber cells. It's like really interesting that this had happened and how it can still be seen today. And it's on display in Lanciano, Italy, even today. Um, there's also on the tables for St. Joseph Radio, if you wanted more information, a lot of what I just said can be found on this card about this particular miracle. It has a lot of the text on the back. So if you wanted to uh, if you wanted to have a written form of some of that information, you can get it that way during the break. Another Eucharistic miracle I want to talk about is one um, that's accredited to Ofta, because that's where the, uh, the relics are. It's also in Italy. But in reality, it, um, it didn't take place in Ofta. That's just where the relics ended up. Uh, I believe when I read about it, um, it was also from Lanciano, Italy. Um, but since the relics ended up in Ofta, it's accredited to that. So this is the Eucharistic miracle of Ofta. Uh, it's a very interesting story. Um, there was a woman who wanted to win the affection of her husband back, and she wasn't sure how to do it. So she decided she was going to go to an actual real witch and ask for assistance on how to win her husband back. And the witch tells her to steal a consecrated host and then to heat it up so that it would lose all of its water vapor and disintegrate into powder. 
then secretly put the powdered Eucharist into his food, and that will win him back. Um, to me, that sounds very bizarre. But this woman in 1273 thought it was worth a try, so she did it. She stole a host, she brought it home, she cooked it, but as she was cooking it, it turned into human flesh and blood. She was so terrified at this that she wanted to hide it. So the jar in which she was cooking it, she buried it very sadly in a pile of manure in her husband's barn and left it there, tried to pretend it didn't happen. Strange thing happened though, her husband noticed that whenever the donkey would enter the barn, it would always genuflect towards the pile of manure. So he thought she put some sort of curse or spell on the donkey and he was upset about that. Um, but she kept quiet. She didn't want anybody to know that she had done this. But eventually it was just eating her up from the inside. And so seven years later, she brings it to the attention of a priest. She confesses the sacrilege that she had committed and she tells a priest about it. So he goes and he retrieves the blessed sacrament. Um, and so you can see on the handout, there are also a couple pictures uh, from the relics of the miracle of Ofta. Uh, in the one picture, it has the, the jar in which uh, the host was cooked and in which it became human flesh. And in the other image, it shows a reliquary uh, that contains the host that had turned into human flesh. Um, if that wasn't interesting enough, there's also a story which correlates with the creation of this, uh, this cross that is the reliquary that holds the relic of that, um, of that flesh that came from that host. Uh, so the two monks took this relic and they wanted to create a reliquary. So they went to a craftsman to make this reliquary that you can see a picture of in the handout uh, for Ofta. So that's on the front page, uh, bottom of the front page. So this was 16, uh, let's see, that was the wrong date. Anyway, um, so the two monks, they go to a craftsman back in the 13th century, 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 and they request that he make this reliquary. So he takes the jar, but as soon as he does, immediately he becomes sick with a fever. And he asks them, what have you done to me? And they said, well, are you in mortal sin? And he said, yes. And they're like, uh, you should go to confession. So one of them, one of those two monks was a priest. He immediately went to confession and the fever immediately disappeared. Um, in which case he was then able to handle the jar and the relics and make the reliquary. Um, but this illustrates another kind of miracle that God wants to show his holiness by those who are not in a state of grace being punished for daring to come to the Lord who is so holy and defiling him in this way. Um, all the more reason, as the church teaches, not to go to Holy Communion if you are in a state of mortal sin. Um, actually, sacred scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses uh, 27 through 29, I think it is, or somewhere around there, um, St. Paul actually warns us not to receive when we're um, 
in a state of mortal sin. He doesn't use those exact words, but that's the meaning of what he's saying, uh, because people were actually getting physically sick and dying. And St. Thomas Aquinas, when he gives his commentary on that passage, says the same thing. So when the church says, don't receive Holy Communion if you're in a state of mortal sin, it's not just because you should go to confession first, but because there are actual possible consequences. God sometimes does do things to manifest his holiness. So in this case, the man got sick with a fever and he recovered when he went to confession. And so um, it's important to go to confession before receiving Holy Communion. So uh, even though I put the wrong date on the handout, it wasn't 1610, it was 1273. Uh, 1610 is actually the next miracle, um, which is the one in Rome. There were actually three miracles in Rome, but unfortunately the relics of two of those miracles were moved out from Rome and gone elsewhere. But in Rome, there's still the relics of one of those three miracles that took place there. This one in 1610, uh, in which a host was consecrated by a priest who was doubting the real presence of our Lord. Sound familiar? And... Um, it actually fell and landed on the steps of the church. And you can see in the picture uh, that there are marks left in the stone of that church uh, where the host fell. So like it indented the stone when the host fell. Like that's also not normal. Um, and Jesus is again showing the reality of his presence in this miracle, letting the priest who was doubting know that he really is present. So uh, the, in, that, in those pictures, um, you can see one where it shows a zoom in on this stone and where the host had landed. You can see the circular shape where it had impacted the stone. And above that is where uh, blood had stained the uh, stone from when it had fallen. So um, again, Jesus is trying to reveal that he is there. He is truly present. Um, and so it's very interesting that our Lord would do this, especially when there are people who are doubting, um, because he wants to help us in our faith. He wants us to believe the truth. He wants us to appreciate this great and awesome gift of his very self in the Eucharist. A more recent one uh, for, is from Sokolka, Poland, and this is from 2008. I think in the handout I mistakenly put 2006, but it's from 2008 in which this happened. Um, and uh, basically, a priest was distributing Holy Communion, and during Holy Communion, a host fell and didn't, uh, didn't realize he did that right away, but uh, he did pick it up, and believing it was dirty, instead of consuming it immediately, he put it uh, aside in what's called, um, it could be called a vasculum, it could also be called an ablution dish. It's basically something of water, so that just as bread disintegrates in water, the Eucharist, even though it truly is Jesus, still has the attributes of bread. And so like bread, which dissolves in water, if we take a host that's dirty or for whatever reason cannot be consumed, and we place it in water, it will dissolve over time. And as soon as it no longer has the appearance of bread, we know that Christ is no longer present. So this priest, believing that it was dirty and cannot be consumed, places it in this vessel of water and uh, sets it aside. The sacristan takes it and puts it into another vessel and then locks it into a safe 
where the chalices are kept. Personally, I would put it in the tabernacle because it's still Jesus, but um, I wasn't there. <laughs> so uh, she, the sacristan, put it in the safe with the chalices. Uh, but an interesting thing happened. As they looked at it, it started to secrete um, blood. And so this red substance, so they decided to do an analysis on it. And so in January of 2009, so a few months later, um, I was bad with Italian. I'd be even worse with Polish. So I will spare you the names uh, before I butcher them. But two specialists in path, uh, pathological anatomy at the medical university, um, they, one was named Maria, that's an easy name, uh, and the other one, Stanislaw, they analyzed samples of the blood-stained host. Um, and the host was placed on a corporal. So if you look at the pictures uh, in the handout, you can see the corporal in the middle. You can see the red blood stain um, on the corporal where the host was placed. So after it was in one vessel, changed to another vessel, placed onto the corporal, um, and it was still bleeding. They found numerous biomorphical indicators of cardiac muscle tissue. So again, muscle tissue of the heart. In this analysis, that's what they saw. They also saw numerous small lesions um, that are observed. Uh, they noticed that it was truly alive and that there were, shown, there were signs of fast spasms of the cardiac muscle indicating um, extreme stress, typically before preceding death. So when we're looking at these miracles, it seems that our Lord, when he's revealing that it really is him and he changes it into human flesh and blood, it seems that he's showing us his heart right before he gives up his life on the cross. That this moment of agony and stress and pain as he's dying on the cross, he's making this perfect act of love on the cross, which is made present in the Eucharist and the sacrifice of the Mass. He's showing us that that's what we need to focus on. His true presence, but also this awesome gift, this perfect gift of love for our salvation. And so that this cardiac tissue is also still joined to the consecrated host in an in inseparable manner. Meaning like if you zoomed in on that corporal, you could see part of the bread and then kind of like this transition phase and then human tissue and blood. As if the bread was becoming human flesh and blood which in the Eucharist, it becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So in this miracle, unlike the other ones I mentioned, it doesn't transition fully, but it's like a snapshot of a transition to help us to understand. So that those who doubt, oh, well, maybe this, this sample of flesh came from somewhere else. Like, you can't in this miracle because the two are joined and inseparable. Bread, and then it becomes flesh. You could see it on the corporal. And like the other Eucharistic miracles where bread and wine become human flesh, there is a lack of decay, as if it had been taken straight from the person. Despite the fact that it's months later, it had been soaked in water, it's been drying out on the corporal, and yet it's still as if it was freshly taken from a human being. And so... Um, this is a great and awesome miracle. I love it when they do these scientific analyses so that people who doubt 
uh, would have to then refute the medical experts who analyze these things, who can actually pronounce those words that I can't, um, to know that this is really happening. There's good reasons to believe that Jesus is doing this. And so just a summary timeline of that miracle. So October 12th, 2008, the host was dropped and it was placed in an ablution dish. And then seven days later, it was examined and they noticed that there was blood coming from it. Then 10 days later, they placed it on the corporal. On January 7th, they did the testing and discovered it was mitocardial tissue from the heart. And almost a year later, they examined it again and it was again recognized as living tissue without any signs of decay. So that's really awesome. Um, I'd like to take us to the next miracle that I want to talk about, which is uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, this is actually three different miracles where pretty much the same thing happened three different times from 1992, 1994, and 1996. So you can see in the handout pictures of those miracles. Um, and basically, it's similar to what we've heard before, that, uh, that someone doubted, um, the consecrated host was received by a faithful person on August 15th, 1996, but accidentally dropped it to the ground and didn't want to pick it up because they thought it was dirty. So another person who was more pious noticed that it had happened and picked it up and placed it separate from the remaining hosts, letting the priest know about it, who then put it in a vessel full of water and placed it in the tabernacle. Um, in 2001, um, it was investigated and uh, samples were sent to the same professor who did the analysis of Lanciano. And he identified white blood cells in there. And white blood cells, if you're not familiar with them, they die 15 minutes after being removed from the human body. And yet here are white blood cells being recognized uh, from this, these miracles um, in 2001 when they took place in the 1990s. So again, this sense that this is fresh, as if it was straight from the Lord, uh, as if it had come directly from the person right before the analysis, despite being years later. Again, these samples are from heart tissue. And uh, again, they show that uh, a lot of similarities to that of Lanciano. Um, they sent the, the, the samples off to another professor, Professor John Walker at the University of Sydney in Australia. And he confirmed that they show muscle tissues and white blood cells. And, um, and despite the fact that it had been over six years before he did the analysis, the white blood cells were there and still alive. And so in these pictures, you can see just a close-up of those different things. You can see the blood cells, you can see um, you can see the host, you can see the blood coming from the host. Um, and some of these pictures are from the different events. I don't think they did an analysis on the 1994 miracle, but it was similar to these other ones from 92 and 96, in which you can see these pictures in your handouts. Another miracle, a little bit different, took place in India, and this one was verified in 2001. 
Um, there was a host that was on display in adoration where people can look upon the Lord, uh, adoring him, truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And as that was taking place, there seemed to be an image of a man appearing on the host. So in your handout, you can see a picture of that, uh, of the monstrance with the host with the man's picture on it. Um, the archbishop of the diocese uh, examined it, and he said, For us believers, what we have seen is something that we have always believed. If our Lord is speaking to us by giving us this sign, it certainly needs a response from us. Um, and so this monstrance containing the host is still on display even today. So it has this image of a man. Uh, it's kind of a, the image kind of seems to be coming in this reddish form uh, in the image in the host in the monstrance. There are many other miracles. There's actually over 200, sorry, 126 Eucharistic miracles that have been approved by the church. Uh, some of the other ones that are a little bit different that I would like to mention include one from Waldern, Germany from 1330, in which the precious blood was spilled. And as it was spilled, it created this image of our crucified Lord onto a corporal. Um, in Avignon, France in 1433, uh, there was a huge flood and they wanted to rescue the host. So they went by boat to the church and the water had reached like the level of the, uh, the level of the tabernacle setting. And it hadn't quite gotten to the tabernacle, but I think it was the bishop. It might've just been a priest. I don't quite remember. Um, when they got to the doors, uh, the waters that had filled the church parted so that he could just walk straight to the tabernacle and retrieve our, our Lord and then get back in the boat and go off. So that was pretty spectacular. Um, in Dronero, Italy in 1631, there was a host that stopped a raging fire. In Siena, Italy in 1730, uh, there was a miraculous preservation of hosts which are still on display today and apparently still smell as if they have been fr freshly baked. Um, so Siena, Italy in 1730, that was the miraculous preservation of that host. There's a story behind that too, but I don't want to spend too much time on all of these. Um, Telixa, Mexico in 2006, there was a bleeding host and they did an analysis on that similar to Lanciano and the other ones I mentioned with similar results as if it was fresh as if it was taken straight from uh, the person. We are blessed here at ICD to be able to offer uh, adoration um, from Monday morning through Saturday morning, every week. And so uh, the Lord who has revealed himself to us through Eucharistic miracles, uh, but also through sacred scripture, through uh, the early church fathers, through official church teaching, um, makes himself available to us in adoration so that we can look upon him and he can look upon us, so that we can spend time with him, physically present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. In fact, uh, for Lent, uh, the Adoration Committee is challenging all of our parishioners, um, if they're not already participating in Eucharistic Adoration, to sign up just for Lent, about six weeks, to come to our Lord in Adoration for one hour each week, and we have a poster board out there. If you're interested in signing up just for Lent for six weeks, 
to adore our Lord truly present in the Eucharist, you can sign up for that um, in our gathering space. Um, because I love our Lord so much and I love Eucharistic miracles so much, uh, I have arranged for the Vatican International Eucharistic Miracles of the World exhibit to be here at ICD. Uh, a few years ago, we've had a portion of it. The, these are poster boards of the miracles. Um, so the miracles I've talked about, you can read about them on poster boards. Uh, over 200, sorry, I did it again, 126 uh, poster boards about all of these kinds of miracles. Um, so that will be around the time of Corpus Christi, the Solemnity of the Body and Blood of Our Lord. So June 8th through June 11th in 2023, we will have that available. It'll be in the North Parish Hall. Um, in the South Parish Hall, we're likely going to be having videos playing, talking about Eucharistic miracles. I'm also going to arrange for four different presentations. Um, one of them will likely be by me, uh, but maybe more if I can't find other people. Um, they're also going to take, we are also going to take some of our uh, sacred vessels, chalices, ciborium, vestments as well, and put them on display with explanations. I mean, we see these things at Mass, but where are they? Where do they come from? What's their history? Uh, so we'll have that on display during that time too. And there's also going to be a children's section with activities and children's stories um, about Eucharistic miracles. So that event, June 8th through the 11th. Um, again, because I love our Lord so much and I love Eucharistic miracles so much, in addition to that, in September, uh, there is a pilgrimage that I am leading to Italy in which we will see 12 of the sites and relics of Eucharistic miracles. There are flyers available for that pilgrimage in the gathering space if you would like more information. It is from September 25th through October 6th in 2023. Um, and just to kind of give you a sense, we will be going to the site of Lanciano, of Ofta, and of Rome. So those miracles that I talked about in uh, my presentation, we will actually see those in person as part of the pilgrimage. But we'll also go to Assisi, where uh, St. Clair held a monstrance of our Lord and warded off invading soldiers. Um, they fled when Jesus in the Eucharist was presented to them. We'll also go to Florence, where two Eucharistic miracles took place, where precious blood became human blood, um, and the Eucharistic host survived a fire. Uh, we'll also go to Siena, which I've already mentioned, miraculous preservation of the host. Uh, More Viale, where the Eucharistic host survives a fire. Uh, Maturata, where a bleeding host stained a corporal. We'll see the corporal. Uh, Begno di Romagna, Again, I apologize for my terrible Italian, uh, where real human blood flowed from a chalice and also stained a corporal. And that's just a sample of some of the places, um, more places that we will also visit that aren't Eucharistic miracles will be included as well, such as uh, visiting San Giovanni Rotundo, where Padre Pio, his incorrupt body is, uh, Monte Sant'Angelo, where St. Michael appeared four times to the villagers, um, and other cool places. So, um, if you want to see some of these places in person, you can look into participating in that pilgrimage to Italy for Eucharistic miracles. Lastly, um, if you don't want to wait for the uh, exhibit to come, all of those miracles are contained in a book called The Eucharistic Miracles of the World, the Catalog of the Vatican International Exhibition, um, in which it has 
uh, all of these different kinds of miracles. And so the book and the website is actually where I got the pictures for your handouts. The website is therealpresence.org. So if you wanted to see these things, you can go to therealpresence.org um, and it has information on the Eucharist uh, where you can get more information, where you can look at these different miracles and read uh, what's in the book, what's on those poster boards for yourself. Um, so in closing, Jesus loves you so much, he makes himself available in the Eucharist. Uh, he knows it's hard for us to believe, despite revealing in Scripture through the early church fathers and through the official teaching of the church. So he makes it known that he's truly present in miraculous ways, some of which have been scientifically investigated, but all the ones that I've presented have been approved by the church so that we can grow in our faith, we can be more solid in our understanding and appreciation of this wonderful and awesome gift of our Lord truly present in the Eucharist. Um, if you've enjoyed this presentation, uh, we would appreciate any donations you would like to make. Uh, we do have a basket near the baptismal font in our church if you would like to make a free will offering as an expression of your gratitude for this presentation and the other presentations that we are having. We will have a short break uh, before our next presenter. And um, let's go ahead and close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful, awesome gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, truly present in the Eucharist. We thank you for the Eucharistic miracles to help us in our faith. We ask you to continue to strengthen our faith in the belief of the real presence of our Lord, but also in all of the teachings of the Church that we may come to better know you, love you, and serve you, and one day be with you forever in heaven. We ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all that from a former nuclear engineer <laughs> who became priest. Would the Lord say, blessed are those who have not seen and believed now we have a chance to see it. What a blessing that we have here. And all that stuff that goes on around us, you think the whole world would know? Not at all. All these miracles are being kept from the faithful and the ones who want to become faithful. And that's where the battle comes in. And we are all into it, and we need to step it up. That's what we're here for.